Hi, I'm Scott Cooper, and welcome to the Tales from the Trail podcast by Matchplay. In this episode, I welcome Jimmy Conrad. Among Jimmy's many nicknames are Conradinho and your favorite U.S. men's national team ex-player. Jimmy shares his experiences growing up in an environment that created grit and resilience, fighting to live out his dream of playing for UCLA and winning a national championship. He then went on to grind his way into the MLS and eventually onto the national team where he played in the 2006 World Cup. He now hosts the popular podcast on the CBS Golazzo Network, Call It What You Want, with Jesse Marsh and Charlie Davies. Jimmy is a fantastic guest, was very generous with his time, and I look forward to having him on again very soon. If you're enjoying the podcast and find it valuable, please consider visiting buymeacoffee.com matchplay. These small donations collectively help offset costs and other expenses associated with production of the podcast, so I can continue to offer this service for free. Please take an extra minute to rate and review the podcast where you listen. This is a huge help. Share the podcast with whomever you think would be interested and will help in their process. Check us out on social media as well. The links can be found at matchplayrecruit.com. So do you have your you have your own podcast? Or do I you, do. Yeah. It's called Call It What You Want with mm-hmm. Jesse Marsh and Charlie Davies on CBS. Oh, cool. So it's a big time one. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's yeah. I got some big names. I'm just the host. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um well I can't thank you enough for coming on. It's very generous of you to to uh pop on here. Um especially after Coaching your daughter in in uh, in soccer there this afternoon. I guess they're on break, and you're you're having like a midday uh, training session and that sort of thing. Um, uh, how's that going? That's great. I absolutely yeah. love it. Yeah. I'm coaching high school, and I have a lot of ideas about coaching. Obviously, or for those that don't know, after I played for a long time. When you retire as a former athlete, you pretty much have two paths. You can coach or you can get into media. And I went down the media rabbit hole. And obviously, there's a gajillion jobs you could do. But those those Mm -hmm. are the two that feel the most obvious. So I went down the media rabbit hole. And I am still in that rabbit hole. But I have these ideas of coaching. And and, and if I was in charge, what would I do? And and, and so when I'm out there and you have to bring these ideas to, to... fruition and you have to, okay, it's one thing to be idealistic. It's another thing to actually execute and to get kids to understand what you're asking them to do is it's a challenge. And so I, I really welcome it. And it's made me actually probably a better analyst because I can really speak to it in a real 360 view. And, and on top of that, I'm getting my, trying to get my, my A license with U.S. soccer. Mm-hmm. And so all these experiences, no matter what the level, help inform and help shape what I want to do, and, and ultimately, and maybe more importantly, how I want to do it, mm-hmm. because you learn a lot, even even with the kids. Ah, you know, I, I you know, on paper that drill seemed like it should have worked, but when I go out and execute it, it doesn't, and and it's because two or three players don't under, either under understand or the spacing, like the cones are too close together, and just little things, you know, that you maybe take for granted when you're uh, you know talking trash about coaches on, <laughs> on TV. So. It's it's been great and and yes, coaching my daughter's different. It, it's a different type of challenge because it's a real gray area between when I'm wearing the coach hat and when when I'm wearing the dad hat. 
And and uh, if she was the out and out best player, I don't think this would be that hard. But but she's not. We have a couple players that probably are D one level, and so like most coaches, you build around those that talent, and you help try to get everybody to reach that level as well. And and uh, hopefully that leads you to success. But ultimately, yeah. I try to be positive. And and I had individual meetings. You probably love this. I had individual meetings with each player, and I asked them prior. I had them fill out a questionnaire because I've, there's four areas of development, right? There's tactical, technical, physical, and mental, emotional. And I asked them, how do they want to improve in each area? And then we're going to go back and revisit it at the end. And I had individual meetings. We talked about that, and I'd let them know exactly where they stood at the current time, right? Because anything, things can change. And ultimately, I lost my best player to an ACL injury a couple of weeks ago, and and that's going to change the complexion of our season but you know we we next player up and um right so we have some big big league games coming up this weekend and i'm excited should be fun cool um so how do you feel like there's been this shift away from playing soccer for your high school you know at the higher levels um how do you feel about that and you know where what are kids missing out on and what how are they benefiting now yeah, I'll talk about the missing out on first because I really valued my time in high school. It's the one moment, I would say, in your career where you get to represent the people that you're surrounded by every day. You also are surrounded ultimately by your friends, people you have to look in the eye at some point at school or get hyped for a game. Like, oh my God, we got our big rival this way. I mean, it's just, it's just different than playing your club ball. Now, now that's more of a social component that I think is really important because win or lose, you still have to face the music. You win, everybody thinks you're the greatest. You lose, dude, what's your problem? You suck. Like, let's get right. it together. And, you, and there's that immediate feedback that I don't think you always get at the club level. The club level, it's more, what does my coach think? What does my parent think? Mm-hmm. When you're doing it for your school, it's like, what does the whole school think? You know, And, and you don't want to let those people down. And, it, and that responsibility is different. So there's that social intangible that I think you can't replicate in college. Now, the other intangible on the field, and I guess there's some intangibles off the field too in terms of leadership and responsibility and accountability, but when you're playing with your club team, especially the way the youth system is set up now, if you're on a top, what's ECNL team or MLS Next Pro team, everybody's pretty good. Right. And the asks of those players, being a leader in that situation, it's a little bit different, I'd say, because you can ask a player, hey, I need you to do this, and most likely they'll be able to execute that. You go to high school and the levels are so varying in terms of skill. How do you, as the best player, get the player that maybe can't trap very well or consistently well to, to be good enough to, to help the team and to get you the ball in good areas? That's, that's a whole different skill set that I actually think is important for life that you miss out on if you skip high school. So, so you're learning how to lead. You're learning how to take responsibility. You're learning how to raise the game of people outside of your. You have to think about more than yourself if you're one of the best players in high school. And and if you're not one of the best players, it's like how do I raise my game to the players that that there's a whole different like there's so many crazy intangibles that we miss out on. Our kids miss out on developmentally because they're skipping high school and that experience. And I think it's a real shame. For all the player, I have parents right now that are that are kind of nipping at me about. Uh, I left some some kids on JV, who are probably varsity level, but I inherited some seniors who had been with the program from year one, 
And it would have been really ruthless of me to cut them in their senior year to bring on some freshmen who will have their time. Now, they just happened to run into the wrong coach because I played JV my freshman year and I went on to play in a World Cup. So I realized that that's not how you start high school, it's how you finish. And, and that, that, doesn't, that doesn't satisfy them. They don't care. They just want their kid to play. Right. But, but ultimately, there's so many important lessons that you can learn along the way that only high school can provide. And I think we're doing a disservice to our kids by, and, and not only that, there's like this snobbery that exists, this elitism that I don't like either that, that, Oh, you play high school. Like you can feel it. And it's like, there's an aura around the people that look down upon it and they're completely missing the boat. And I'd be surprised if those kids went on to, not to say there'll be some, of course, they're going to, that are they're just excellent and they're going to go on and do what they're going to do. But in terms of, that that growing as a human being, I think they miss out on, on an important piece. And I, I honestly say college would be the same. Going to play in college was important for me. I wasn't ready to be a pro at 17 or 18. I needed right. those years of experience as a college to kind of have that buffer between becoming a, from a kid to an adult. And that college experience helped me as well grow as a person. So then when there was some real adversity that happened when I was a pro, I was ready to adapt to that. And I was more capable emotionally to to manage the ups and downs of being a pro and ultimately scott the reason i played for a long time was because i was good in those areas i wasn't gonna blow you away with my speed or, or you know hit a 60 yard long ball you know or whatever my talent was commitment my talent was working through adversity and and the most talented guys that were told they were great all the time by you know when they were young and always going oh you're the best player ever blah 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 the first time they ran into some adversity, they cracked because they never had to deal with it before. That was born in adversity. And I, you know, I just stuck with it. And that's what I feel most comfortable. The more chaos, the better. But anyway, right. I'm going off on tangent and get into my story a little bit. But I would say that the high school experience is really important. And I wish people would look on it more favorably than they do. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you about your your story. Um, so since you <laughs> no, dipped you don't, your toe don't, don't, don't feel like you have to. You don't have to. I was yeah. just saying that. that well, I, I, I mean, I, I although I, I didn't really write anything down, I did prepare. I do know that you have a a, a different a bit of a a cool story. Um, I don't know if you know if cool is the right word, but uh, you know, I'll just uh, yeah, I, I talk about you know growing up and and what your experience as a kid was, your experience as a youth player, and then. You know, just kind of walk us through you know, the timeline there. Sure, sure. I'll give you the timeline. So I think what's important for people to know in terms of my mental makeup, let's say, my parents had me when they were 18 years old and broke up before I was born. So when I say I was born into chaos, I legitimately was where there was a lot going on. And my parents were so young, they needed to live their lives as well, even though they were probably sacrificing their dreams by keeping me. When yeah, I don't know how heavy we want to go and how much you're charging for this therapy here, Scott. But I would say that uh, it would have been prudent for them to give me up for adoption. You know, that probably would have been the best choice for them and what they wanted to accomplish in their own lives. But fair play to them. They kept me. And, and so we, we figured it out. We survived and ultimately thrived together. So my mom got married when I was three to my stepdad. And my dad got married when I was 11. And everybody gets along, which is great. Super important. And there's been a nice peace and harmony to all that, thankfully. And I think it was in, they looked at my best interest, mental and emotional, when I use that as a, as a development thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it did pay off for sure. But when I was 11, so I played soccer, basketball, baseball, everything. And age 11, I ran into a coach. We were like on all the AY, I was playing AYSO, Region 98, shout out to Region 98 <laughs> down in LA. 
And we were, my team were just destroying everybody. We won sectionals, state things. I have all types of medals from that time. And one of the volunteer dads, his oldest son played soccer at Cal State Northridge. And so he'd come back and train us every once in a while, but not really consistently. And then he said he wanted a little extra scratch. There's clearly a lot of talent here. The club scene is really starting to get a little bit more organized in Southern California. Let's make it a club team. And at that point at age 11, he said, you guys need to make a choice. You either play soccer full time or you go find another team. <laughs> and, and I was playing baseball and I was pretty good. And, and I was, baseball is boring, dude. I'm totally playing soccer. So that was a really easy decision for me to make. My parents were like, that's not cool to put that type of pressure on, on kids at that age. But I was ready for it. And I, I wanted more and, and I could feel that. So I just did the club scene from there. Played high school, had a good high school season, uh, my senior year in particular. Got lightly recruited by some D2 teams, but I thought I was good enough to play in D1. I was playing in some high school all-star games. I really wanted to go to UCLA. There was no MLS at the time, and UCLA was my dream school. I, I'd go to games. like That was the only place you could get like a good live game. I'd go see Brad Friedel play, Kobe Jones, Joe Max Moore. Ziggy Schmidt was the coach. And I, honestly, I'd be sitting there 15 years old going, I wonder, I wonder what it's like to to play for Ziggy Schmidt. I mean, I was just in awe of the whole program. <laughs> yeah. And and so I tried to go there. Todd Saldana was the coach. I think he runs LAFC's Youth Academy now. And um, I sent him a note. He goes, I had a 3.8 GPA, crushed my SATs, didn't get into UCLA. But essentially, they sent me a letter going, if you get in, we'll give you a chance to try out. I wish I would have kept the letter, but I didn't. So So that was out. And my club coach was really pushing for me in all these other areas. And he talked the San Diego State coach, Chuck Clegg, into giving me a very, very partial scholarship, sight unseen. Like, he's like, wow. okay, fine. Uh, yeah, sight unseen, who does that? So, so I uh, go down, and I was thrilled. I was, like, telling everybody I got a scholarship to a D1 school, even though it was, like, $300 a semester or whatever. <laughs> uh, and, and I knew that they didn't cut the fittest guy on the team. Like, that was – they never cut the fittest guy on the team because – and then imagine if you're the fittest guy on the team and you can play a little bit. So I try to be in that space. We had to do three miles under 19 minutes. That was the, the test. I ran it in 1710. <laughs> I beat everybody, including the returners, by half a lap. I was cruising. Yeah. And, uh, and they, you know, the older guys hated me, of course. But, but I set the tone. And I was serious. And I, and, and I made the team. Now, now, I was playing the sixth. And then Chuck first game of the season puts me up top and, and tells me afterwards. I was all confused at that point because I'd been playing the six for like three weeks mm -hmm. leading up to the first game. And he puts me up top. He goes, I don't trust freshmen in important parts of the field. So we either put you at out, out wide or up top. And I said, that would have been good information to know maybe you know when we started the season. Anyway, that's kind of how it was. He wasn't a good communicator and it was always kind of start stop and he moved you around and you weren't really building the rhythm and our team reflected that type of mentality and, and methodology so after two years i was like i'm out i gotta figure out something else i'm not growing here as a player i've gotten a good experience played like 30 d1 games and uh, i called ucla cold and uh, tried to talk ziggy schmidt into it thankfully danny caliph who was recruiting decided to go to maryland and then he's like all right fine you got some experience he, he hadn't seen me i sent him some videos like i can't tell who you are we got smoked that game anyway. I don't even know why I sent him that video. I went in there cold. I walked into his office cold one day. I'm like, I'm just going to go introduce myself. So I drove all the way from San Diego. It's like a two-hour drive. I shaved. I, I put on uh, khakis. I, you know, you're a college kid. I had khakis on and like a 
and a baby blue uh, button up. I look like I worked at Blockbuster, you know, and I, I walked in and they're like, hey, you got to wait. He's not here right now. They probably were a little freaked out like this guy's coming up out of nowhere. I sat there, didn't say anything to anybody. This is free cell phone for an hour and a half until he showed up and or would see me. And I went and introduced myself and he could see my size, see my personality. And I think that helped ultimately. So they, they, they said, hey, well, we'll get you into school. We'll give you one week to try out. And I left. At this point, my scholarship was about half scholarship. My parents thought I was insane. I'm like, I'm coming. I'm going. I'm going to take the one week. And I was the first walk on to, to make the team or start the first game of the season since Kobe Jones back in the day. Wow. And so, yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. It was my dream school. It's where I always wanted to go. There were some really hard moments throughout that process. Uh, I'll give you one. So one of my high school teammates got recruited as well. So he came in as a freshman and we had physicals before the season started. And, and I went before I made the team, I probably got a little ahead of myself here, but before I made the team, he's like, Oh, just drive with me out there. Cause we were both from the same hometown. So I drive out there and the assistant coach, Paul Crumpy, who played for us in the 90 world cup, who's awesome. You know, but at the time he's like, Hey, you're not on the team. You can't be here. And I said, Oh, okay. And because my teammate was a freshman, he had to wait till the very end to get his physical. I sat in Polly Pavilion by myself for three hours, questioning my whole life. Like, what am I doing here? They don't even want me. I feel so dumb. I can't make any eye contact with anybody. I don't want to in- be introduced to any of the players. And, and by the very end, I think Paul felt so bad. He's like, all right, just, just on the off chance you make the team. Why don't you just get a quick physical or whatever? And, but I didn't want to go in at that point. I didn't want to be seen. I felt like such a second-class citizen. So at that point, I just shut my mouth and just got to work and made the team, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. I was in and out of the lineup for the two years. And ultimately, uh, the guy in front of me, my senior year before the playoffs started, tore his, uh, his ACL five minutes into the first playoff game. So Ziggy had no choice but to play me. And we went on to win the national championship and gave up one goal in those games. And I thought, baby, I'm making, I'm going to make MLS now. I'm on the best college team in the country. And the other four seniors got drafted and I didn't. <laughs> so, so I essentially had to walk on again, but this time on the pros. And right. uh, I went down to San Diego, played in the A-League, got 30 games in six months played pretty well, learned how to be a pro, learned mm-hmm. that it's, is this what I want? Right. I would train with the team in the morning. I would work on my game by myself in the afternoons. I was making $800 a month. I was sleeping on floors, eating ramen, you know, just surviving yeah. mm-hmm. and ultimately got signed by the earthquakes the following year. Went on to play 12 years in MLS, uh, six-time MLS All-Star, MLS Defender of the Year, MLS Humanitarian of the Year. I, I played for the U.S. for five years. I was captain five times, and uh, I played in the World Cup. So I don't know what to tell you. I just, again, my talent is commitment. I just decided I could work through hard stuff, and I'd work a little bit harder than everybody else, and that's my story. All right. So there's a lot to get into there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's so many, so many times I could have quit, and probably yeah. should have. <laughs> I mean, so go back to you know being a kid, and you know what was it that you know made you realize that you had to overcome things you had to just grind through things that you you know when you were miserable or when you're sitting there in poly pavilion hating your life and questioning your decisions and everything what what like what can you trace that back to when you were young that that developed that that resilience so i think part of it was how i grew up and being comfortable in chaos. Mm-hmm. You know, I was 
as, as I mentioned, my parents were very young. So my mom's not proud of this, but she would take me to bars to go find guys, you know, and she'd hide me under tables or they'd take me to parties. And there's some crazy stuff going on at these parties. And I was just, I was just around for some really heavy stuff that I wasn't aware of, but I, you could feel it right as a kid. You can't right. verbalize it, but you can feel it. So, so adversity and resilience felt kind of natural to me in some ways and just putting my best foot forward being being positive about what's happening trying to find silver linings so it's always really been a thread throughout my career both professionally and personally but there was a moment when i was 15 that changed my whole perception of how to approach what's going to happen and it was marcelo balboa's dad louis balboa so so marcelo for those that don't know played in two world cups for us he played in 94 and 98 he was a center back. He wore number 17. I was a center back. I wore number 17. I got, he grew up in my area, not too far from me. I was a big Marcelo Balboa fan. I, had, I used to get Soccer America back in the day, the, the yeah. like, newspaper version of it. Yeah. And I cut out like all those guys, John Harks and Eric Winalda and Marcelo Balboa. And now those mm-hmm. guys are friends, which is like super surreal. But, but my club coach pulled aside Louis Balboa to come talk to us. And you could see Louis like, all right, here we go. He probably gets asked all the time to do this stuff. So I raised my hand, Scott, and I said, how did Marcelo play in two World Cups for the U.S.? Which is the craziest question. If you ask me that, I'm going to give you a 30-minute answer. Hey, this is the things you have to do. Here are the details. Louis looked at me and he goes, he went to the park every day for two hours and worked on his game and moved on to the next question. And that was a light bulb moment for me, an aha moment. Mm -hmm. Because I then realized at that exact moment, that it was up to me to decide how good I was going to be at anything and not anyone else. So that's where things changed for me. Now, it's one thing to say this, to tell this story. It's another thing to go out and ex- actually execute it or to hear it. I, I went to the local school by my house. I'm like, okay, baby, Marcelo did two hours. I got it. Start, start the clock. Here we go. And, and I get out there with my ball and I don't know what to work on. Like, I just don't. I don't have, I don't have any idea as to what to work on. So I'm okay. I'm right footed. My left foot. I'll acknowledge probably isn't as good as my right. I'm going to start working on my left. There, by the way, Scott, there's nobody at the school. Zero. Right. It's just me by myself. And this, there's a wall. Thankfully there's a wall because that ended up being my best buddy. But, but I start juggling with my left foot and I'm awful. It's all, it's, it's so, like, imagine being embarrassed when nobody's looking at you. That's how bad I, you are. So yeah. bad. You're and, doing and, more than, than keepy uppy. Oh, yeah, I'm chasing the ball over the place. It's terrible. It's terrible. And, and I left after 10 minutes. I was like, it's easier to go home and play video games with my buddies mm-hmm. than it is to actually stay here and get better at something. And, and to my credit, I went back out again. And I went back home after 10 minutes. <laughs> it was hard. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. Even, even right. though I knew, okay, okay, you, I had to, I guess one of the benefits of this was that I had to really truly acknowledge what I wasn't good at. And that is so powerful because then you start to analyze your game in a different way. So, so what it ended up turning into, I went to go ask my coach, hey, what do you think I should work on? And instead of, if a coach talks to you and says, hey, you need to be better at this, this, and this, more often than not, every human being is going to get defensive. Right. But if I walk up to him and say, hey, what are the things I need to work on? And he goes, this, this, and this. Well, because now I'm, that, that feedback is massive. Like that is feedback. Man, give me more. What else do I need to work on? Because now I have a place to go work on it. 
and 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 I can ask him questions like, how do you think I should get better at this? Well, you should maybe hit up against the wall or, and I would just be peppered. So all of a sudden, my whole mindset and mentality shifted from getting defensive when I got feedback to this is a great information. Thank you so much. How much more do you have for me? Right. And that is, that changed everything for me. So anytime that I got information, I had a safe place to go work on it without being judged. And, and I found and created that space for me. So that 10 minutes turned into 20 and that 20 minutes turned into 40. And I'll tell you what, Scott, what changed for me, what was the big continued, I keep going, you're, you're on the right path moment was when I got, I would go be at practice and the game just slowed down for me. Like I was starting to take good first touches that allowed me time to pick up my head and make a better pass or to give me more time to make that next decision. Or I'd already, because I picked up my head more, I was already making that decision before the ball got to me. And I had the guys going, dude, what's, how did you get so good? And I wouldn't tell anybody. I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm giving away my secrets, you know? So, so once that, that became, that was the drug. Once I realized I was getting better, I was like, wow, if I did 20 minutes, I could be twice the player. If I did 40, oh my God. And then you start to, well, what if I lifted? What if I ran? What if I did all these other things? And you start to incorporate that. And now I'm laying a real foundation for my growth as a player. Right. And when you have that foundation in place, when you deal with some adversity, we call it, you know, uh, ladrillo por ladrillo, brick by brick. When you have a really strong foundation that's brick and it's real, then when adversity comes, you're going to be sturdy. You, you know where to go and what to work on. And if somebody tells you, as I got told plenty of times, that I wasn't good enough to be a pro, that, that I would never make it, you're like, you fall back onto, well, it's up to me to decide how good I'm going to be. Not you. You know, when I, I, I remember Ziggy, when he wouldn't play me, I'd get all frustrated. You know, he was, he was a tad overweight and I'd be like, this guy's, he can't even kick a ball. You know, he looks like Santa Claus and that's be at, you know, I just do whatever I could and to continue <laughs> to keep myself motivated to prove him wrong. What's right. funny is that of, of all the players that he had during that era, I'm the, I was the most successful. I was the one that played in the world cup. I was the one that had the most caps and, and, uh, it's, it's really crazy for me to say that out loud because my big love was always playing for UCLA and, and uh, I still rest in peace to Ziggy who, you know, we had a great relationship, but, and he would laugh at me, giving him a hard time. Uh, but, but when I go back and I'm around those guys, I still defer to them so much because I couldn't, I still can't believe I played for UCLA. It's almost like more impactful for me than, than playing for the U S but yeah, because I just, so I wanted it so badly. And that was always my goal and dream. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, Why'd you go back the second day to the school? What made you do that? Good question. I think it was because I knew I had more to give. I, I, I felt like I had done myself a disservice that I'd sold myself short, that I didn't really give it my all. And yeah. that would have been harder to live with than to have given my all and still failed. I, I kind of just, it's because I didn't know what to do. I, I definitely respond to, and, and, and I try to encourage this with all the young players that I coach. If you're going to go work on your game, go have a, you got to have a plan. You need right. something that you can always go back and reference. Like, hey, I did 10 juggles today. Whatever it is. It can be numerical. It can be time. Whatever it is. So, so that, I needed that. And, I, and that was me trying to formulate, how do I have a plan and what am I going to work on? And when you get out there, you start to come up with games that you can use. And now, obviously, with, with YouTube and everything else, there's so many different resources that you right. can use and lean on to get better at the game. But that, that's what I was doing at the time. And, and uh, 
yeah, I mean, credit to me. That that's obviously a very pivotal moment to yeah. to my formation as a player. And, so and I guess like, as a human. Yeah. So you feel like uh did you did you keep track of did you keep a journal? Did you write things, you know, write things down that you were doing and you know did you compare it over time, you know, to measure your progress? I I would go out enough that I didn't need to write down things per se. I, I knew that, hey, the day before I got I, I ultimately and I learned this from Paul Crumpy, my assistant, he would put an X on a wall and try to hit that same X over and over and over. And so I would do the same, but in different ways. Like I'd let let it bounce once before I try to hit the wall or you know, or I'd have to like do a thigh volley and play it back. And you just make up different things. So I would just be like, hey, the day before I got three out of 10. Now the other seven probably weren't too far from the X, but but I wanted to get 10 out of 10, right? There was always that push. And there were moments too where I wouldn't let myself go home until I got whatever goal I was trying to reach that day. Right. And and uh, sometimes I wouldn't reach it. And, I, and my mom would call me. She, my mom could whistle, man. And she, she'd be like, it's time to come home. And I'd have to come back, tail between my legs. I'd been out there for 90 minutes working on my game, but I didn't actually reach my that one thing I had set for myself. And so I'd be all frustrated at dinner. And she'd be like, what's your problem, man? <laughs> right. But yeah. but yeah, so I documented some stuff. I think I documented more of my running times. Like I had a nice two and a half mile loop that I had found near my house. Mm-hmm. And I kept tabs of my times on that. But um, but in terms of touching the ball, I, I could feel myself getting better. The hard part is sticking with it at the beginning. Because, yeah. and I deal with this with my own kids now that are trying to touch the ball a little bit more on their own. They give up so quickly. and and uh, or, or won't address it. Instead of like pushing through it, they just, I'm going to work on something else. No, how about you just do 10 really good ones and then you can move on to the next thing. But they... You know, and I, again, uh, as a dad, you can only, they, they have to want it for themselves. And so, so I can show them and then I just get out of the way. Yep. Um, that's a, that's a whole different podcast. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, I was going to ask one more question about, you know, kind of your mentality while you were developing there, um, at the school against the wall. I, I was talking to a, uh, sports psych kind of guy and there, he was talking about, you know, if you say, all right, I'm going to go out there for an hour, then at 60 minutes, you're going to quit as -hmm. opposed to, you know, focusing more on the quality of Mm -hmm. things. I mean, you sounds like you were more focused on that than just setting your stopwatch for 60 minutes or 90 minutes and then being gone. You know, I think, I think what I love that, what he's saying too, the quality is super important because you're getting a lot of good repetition, but you want to make sure that repetition serves a purpose and, and, Mm -hmm. What ultimately becomes is a familiarity with the ball in different situations and being comfortable with the angles and how you want to hit it. And, and uh, so it's really important. Um, yeah. Playing up against the wall is, is, is undefeated, by the way. I think it's, it's such an <laughs> important tool to, to growing as a player. And again, yeah. for me, it kind of gave me that safe place uh, that I could just work and, and work through different things. But, but in terms of the time, I think when you start, that's all you're focused on is the time. Because, because you don't love it yet. You have to love it. You have to love. That's when you start loving the journey and not the destination. You can't, you, you know, you, you see the cliche or the, the quotes, you know, the famous quotes. But, but to actually live that quote is something much, much different. And, and so that, that took a while for me to get there. I'm not going to say I hit a switch and all of a sudden I loved, I loved the journey. 
I wanted, I wanted, I was in a, I was in a rush at, at some days to, to get to the destination. Like, Hey, I'm working on my game. Why hasn't it happened at all at once? And, and that's just not, unfortunately how it works. You, right. you do have to put the time and you have to lay, lay that foundation in terms of my mentality though, that, that that's built and it grows very similarly to, to what he's saying. And so, yeah, there'd be that, that, that love of wanting to go out there, that love of wanting to get better, that love of failure in some ways where you know that you have to fail to get to where you want to go is another key component towards this whole process. You're going to make mistakes. And, and when I coach now, I encourage the kids to make, like, if they're not making mistakes, I tell them in practice, then the practice was too easy. Like I need to get you out of your comfort zone so that you can one, manage what that looks like and feels like, but all, and then work through it. And we just move on to the next play. You know, use that as knowledge for, hey, that that pass probably wasn't the right one in that situation. Next time I'm going to do this. So I'm really trying to encourage making them students of the game so that they love the process and the details as well. Yeah. So what, what's been your experience? I mean, are, are kids too focused on being perfect? Um, are, you know, is that being ingrained in them? You know, they got to be perfect to get into college. They have to be perfect to, you know, because of social media, you know, mm-hmm. there, there's just all this pressure on kids now that I don't know that we had as, as kids. And, you know, are you seeing that? And, and, um, you know, how is sports teaching kids that they, how are you using sports to teach kids not to be perfect? They don't have to be perfect. Yeah. So, so that's a big point of emphasis for me. And when I came in, I, I forced them to play a system that they're not comfortable with. A lot of the kids are familiar and comfortable with the four, three, three. And I think given that we had a surplus of center backs and central midfielders, we're doing a three, four, two, one. And that allows me to get one or two more of those players on the field and ultimately makes us stronger as a group because that's where the skill set is, right? You look at your team, you look at the best form and there was so much pushback. It was crazy because oh, this is not what we do. And, and there's a little bit of entitlement that had, I had inherited from the previous coach that, that he let kind of run wild. And so I said, hey, listen, this is what we're going to do. You're going to have to trust me here. I've, I've been around. I've seen a few things. Uh, we're going to work through kind of our team shape, how we want to move on both sides of the ball. And if you make a mistake, it's on me. Because I'm asking you to do something that you haven't maybe been asked to do or haven't been asked to do consistently, and I'm asking you to do this consistently. And uh, that that's all the way back to my goalkeeper. Like I want her playing way off the line. She doesn't have to be manual Neuer, but she needs to any through balls. I need her to be aggressive, especially the high school level. You have a lot of goalkeepers as a stand on their line mm-hmm. and you're going to solve a lot of problems for us. If you're just on the top of your box and a ball comes through, I don't even care. I, of course, if you want to get a trap it and play it, I'm all for it. I'm going to be your number one fan. But if you just lump it out of bounds, that's cool with me too. I, I, I so we talk about soccer decisions a lot. And ultimately, Scott, what I'm trying to get my kids away from is the mental, emotional swings that come from making mistakes. Like mistakes are part of the game. I'm asking you to, to try things, consistently try things, and to play. Every time we win a ball, no matter where we are on the field, can, can we play out of it? That's my question for them. Can we play out of it? And, and we work on that a ton in practice. So that when it happens in the game, they're really comfortable with the pressure that they're under and they don't freak out. So I've also noticed that the game gets highly emotional and it doesn't need to. I say, hey, listen, there's a time and place for, for being emotional. Let's save that for, 
for halftime where we can potentially work through things or, or after the game. In the game, I just need you to make good soccer decisions. Just Let's just make good soccer decisions. What, what you'll love, Scott, and where we've been, we're about six weeks into the season, our last game at halftime. The two or three questions or comments that players wanted to make were all, hey, I think we're getting a little bit too bunched up. Our spacing doesn't need to... I was like, this is amazing. You know, we went from, hey, we need to run harder. We got to run faster. You guys have to pressure, like pressuring with no, what do you mean you got to pressure? Well, yeah, of course we need to pressure, but how are we going to pressure? Where are we shaping the play? So I want them to understand and think the game so that if I ask them anything in any situation or any decision they're making, they can, they can explain their why. I'm moving here because of X. That's what, I, that's what I demand from them. And that's ultimately what I expect. And that's what I want the discourse to be. And it's, it's playing out that way. So I really just try to get them out of, out of the emotional. I, listen, baby, I want mistakes. Mistakes are part of the game. Like it's a game of mistakes. Now for us, guess what? The other team's going to make a bunch too. So why don't we take advantage of theirs and lessen right. the exposure of ours? And I think we're going to win more than we're going to lose. And, uh, and the, so far, actually, after a week, the kid, after we played a couple games, the buy-in for the kids was, was off the charts. And we're actually holding their own against some of the best teams around, which, is, which has been very rewarding. I guess they're very fortunate to have a... Uh, well, I'd like to think so, but yeah. uh, you never know. There's always some parents that want you out, you know, because yeah. you're not... You didn't, you didn't drop the you don't know who I am when you first no, started? No, no, I try not to do any of that. But, but that, you know, I, 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 again, a different group of players, I can maybe push them in different ways, right? Mm-hmm. Some players, that they want to feel that, that pressure. They want that little bit more responsibility. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so you have to know your group ultimately. And, and yes, I think that there's a methodology that you can keep that well, ultimately this is what I like to do. I like to, I want to create a framework so that we're all kind of on the same page, because as I tell the kids, if, if you have a kid playing two touch or we have a team, I try to, we try to play one or two touch out of our defensive half. Once somebody takes three touches, everybody's supporting you on your first or second touch. If you take that third touch, all of your supporting options are dead. And now, now we're, not to say they can't readjust, but now you probably have to take a fourth touch. And at that point, you probably invited a ton of pressure onto you. And now we're probably playing back to our goalkeeper. And, and, but if you just start thinking in one or two touch, I try to think more two touch, you're going to get really good supporting options. And you, we do so many passing patterns uh, that the kids are pretty well, well oiled in that regard. But it's been really cool to see them really take and not even like they're not even thinking about it anymore now and so i demand that of them hey let's let's play two touch in our attacking half or defensive half and then the attacking half if we have space we'll take it but let's not take extra touches for no reason so so getting everybody on the same page about how we want to move as a group cool i set the parameters and then within those parameters i want them to be themselves what do they bring to the game what why do they love playing and and then we try to try to harness that space these are the ideas i've had for a long time and I get to, I coach USL League Two as well with the San Francisco Glens. So I get to work with college kids and, and that's a whole different ball of wax because they're all kind of ingrained in their systems for their college teams and then trying to bring them all together to get them on the same page is, is a different type of challenge. But it's been fun to, to have same ideas, but with a different set of players and different parts of their careers. And, and can you still make it work and have success? And so far, it's been pretty rewarding. And I think uh, I'm moving in the right direction as a coach. Cool. Um... And these are girls. And so what's been your experience um, and your impressions of, of coaching girls versus coaching boys? Good question. In some ways, I don't coach them any different. I, 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 my, what I'm asking them to do are pretty much the same, make good soccer decisions. Um, mm-hmm. 
I don't lean into any stereotypes. I I don't say, oh, my my girls are more emotional. Dude, I got I had guys that were out of control. You know, they make one mistake, and their way of coping with that mistake was by cussing or by throwing their hands up or whatever. So it's 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 the same. I mean, they're all ultimately scraping away. They're human beings. They have a very similar set of emotions. Some are leveled up in different ways. But it, it, for me, the girl versus boy, I don't really attack it any differently. Uh, I, I really address it. I try to be super steady emotionally. So, so I'm not, I'm never high. I'm never low. I just, you know, I'm just asking them to, to, to be the best versions of themselves and to be better than they were the day before. That's really my big ask. And that doesn't change. So, so I don't, I don't kid glove anybody. I don't, I don't baby my star player any different than I'd baby. You know, I, I try to keep, not to say you don't approach each personality in a different way. I I think you do for sure, because I can't press one button with my star player in the same way that maybe my, my second string center back, they're going to have different needs and, and different wants. And, and so I'll meet them where they are personality wise. But, but in terms of the demands, I ask the same of them, like, I need you to make good soccer decisions. So, so, and, and that I try to stay steady with my messaging and I try to stay steady emotionally because if I'm up and down, the team is going to be up and down. The parents on the sideline are going to be up and down. As soon as I lose my cool on the ref, the players are going to lose their cool on the ref. The parents, it just gives everybody license to, well, if Jimmy's doing it, then everybody can, you know, well, then we should be able to do it. And I, I just, hey, the refs are going to do what they're going to do. Some are good, some are bad. What am I going to do about it? Uh, there's some bad ones. <laughs> but, but you know what? And there always has been and there always will be. But there's some really good ones, too. And, and we need to protect and, and continue to nurture our best referees because uh, there's a shortage of refs and, and they control the rhythm and flow of a game. So. Shout out to all the referees out there. It's a thankless job and we appreciate you. But, um, but yeah, that's how I approach it. So it's a good question. And I guess I haven't been asked directly, but I, when I think mm-hmm. about it and scrape things away, I can maybe lean in. And it's not even boy versus girl. Because I'm coaching college guys, I feel like I can just be a little bit more to the point with them. Because it, it, it's more based on their age than it is boy versus girl. Because I know they have more experience, I can ask them, a little bit more directly, whereas I, I like to be a little bit more thoughtful with my younger players in terms of, am I asking too much of them and something they can't do or though they don't feel confident in doing? So again, it's just knowing your personality, personalities. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's really cool. Uh, let's get back to, to your road and how you learned to do all this. So, you know, you leave UCLA and, and what was your, mm-hmm. what was your process to get on a roster and, and so how did you... <laughs> I, 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 I'll give you a funny story. I, I, there was only two rounds in MLS at that point in what, mm-hmm. maybe 12 teams. So you have 48 players that are going to be, or 24 players are going to be picked. And so there wasn't a lot of room, but I thought I'm on the best division one school. So whatever. So I, I'm looking at the, I don't, I didn't get drafted and I'm looking at the, you know, the paper newspaper, old school newspaper. And I'm like, Mike Pecky from Southern Connecticut state got draft. Who the hell is this Mike Pecky guy? You know? And, and, uh, you know, Mike Pecky went on to have a good solid career in MLS. And I think he played for the U.S. a couple of times. But I just, Southern Connecticut State, I didn't see them do anything in the tournament. And we won. I don't know. Don't you want winners on your team? So I was a little bit, yeah, I had a chip on my shoulder. I, I guess my, my chip had been there for a while because I didn't get recruited heavily. And I had to walk on. And even when I was at UCLA, I didn't start and or didn't start regularly and, and never felt trusted by Ziggy because 
I was probably a walk-on and not a player he recruited and then didn't get drafted. So I just, I was harboring, not some resentment, but just, I had something to prove. So ultimately, uh, Ziggy felt bad. I went into him and I'm like, I don't know what to do. I still want to like to play. And he goes, well, let me call the Galaxy and see if you can just go practice with them because they were about 30 minutes away. So he picks up the phone, calls Octavio Zambrano and goes, uh, yeah, cool. You're going you're gonna to go train. Go train with them for two weeks before their preseason starts in Florida. I said, great. I'm going to go do that. And so I went and I kept my mouth shut and, and I went. And so there's a story because they're, in, you know, early on in the season, they're doing fitness. And, and Danny Pena, who was this, played indoor his whole career. Uh, this guy was the hard man of hard men. Like he would smoke cigarettes at halftime. Like this guy was crazy, dude. He, and, and so Octavio, the head coach or Ralph Perez, the assistant, whoever, put all the younger players in this running exercise with Danny Pena. And Danny, I know you, if you didn't want to be, Danny Pena just had an aura of like, I'm going to kick your ass if you even say one word or even look at me, right? So, so I was like, sweet, because how, how, how am I going to make a team if I have to be kind of handcuffed in some ways? And, and as I mentioned previously, I knew that being the fittest guy on the team was really important. And it showed that you cared and you, and you wanted to be there and you wanted to get better and, and had a good mentality and attitude. So we're doing this running drill and, and Danny Pena is just jogging and he's not letting any of the younger guys run past him. He just, he'd be like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, he just couldn't be bothered. He didn't want to run hard, whatever. And that's fine. Whatever. He's 34 at that point. I get it. He's had most of his career. He doesn't want to do extra fitness. Totally understood. I eventually would be 34 at one point and I get it. But, um, <laughs> I, after about a lap or two laps of it, I couldn't do it anymore, Scott. I'm like, I can't, I'm wasting my time here. This isn't, this isn't, so I just took off. I ran and, and I pushed as hard as I possibly could push. And I made him look dumb and I made the other guys look dumb too. And so he pulled me aside later and it's just me and him. And he's like, what the F are you doing? You're making me look like an idiot. Well, and I start crying because I'm like, you're, you're on the team. And I'm not. And how am, I, how, how am I ever going to earn the respect of you or anybody else if I'm not pushing? And, and, and I was like, I couldn't stop, man. I just like, I couldn't, I could barely get it out. And I was so, I didn't want to, I wasn't trying to show him up, but I wanted to prove that I deserved to be there and I was good enough. I still get kind of emotional just thinking about it. And he, at that, from that point forward, he never bothered me again. Never said one word, had my back. I think he ended up being like one of my number one fans as I continued my career. But I stood up to him, not purposely, but I just, I guess I did by running past him. Mm-hmm. But I, that was just, that was who I wanted to be. That's the type of player I wanted to be. And, and, and I knew that that's not the kind of leader I wanted to be either. I would never, even at 34, I was still pushing. But I, 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 but I learned a lot of valuable lessons there. And I think he probably did too, that he's got to let the younger players be themselves. Uh, right. So I haven't seen DP in a long time, but uh, I'm sure we'd have a big laugh about about that story in particular <laughs> and kind of where that mentality ended up taking me. Yeah. So where did it take you? Keep well, going. to a world cup ultimately, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I, I, yeah, from there. So I played with the galaxy and here's another heartbreaking story. After two weeks, I honestly crushed those two weeks. I was so good. I remember thinking, Oh, I can row with these guys. And it gave me a lot of confidence. So every day I'd go out there like, I'm going to push, I'm going to try to get on this team. So I played so well. They said, Hey, you're going to come to preseason with us. They gave us, I was at the Rose Bowl, the locker room that they had. We used to train outside the Rose Bowl at the time. And I had a whole bag. I was number 29. 
and I had all the Galaxy polos and and but this is pre cell phone, okay. And one of my teammates from UCLA, Matt Reese, the goalkeeper, got drafted to MLS, and we lived in the same area at UCLA. So we didn't drive together that particular day because I didn't live too far. My family was really close to there. So he thought I was in, uh, going to Florida for two weeks with the team, and then I had a good chance to make it. Well, what? As I'm, you know, I'm getting, I'm the last guy there. I'm grabbing all my stuff. I'm so excited. And as I walk out, Octavio Zambrano and, and the coaching staff, like, hey, Jimmy, Jimmy, wait, 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 before you go. And I'm like, oh man. So I go in there and they say, hey, we don't know for sure yet if we can take you. So why don't you leave your bag of stuff here and we'll call you later and let you know if you're at 6 p.m. It was like one. We'll call you at 6 p.m. and let you know if you can go or not. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so, so I ended up going home. I, I didn't say anything to anybody. And then I went out to UCLA. And when I went back to UCLA, Matt had told everybody that I was that I was going to Florida. All of our friends, our whole friend group, our team, everybody was thrilled for me because everybody felt bad I hadn't got drafted and all that. So six o'clock comes, no call, no nothing. I'm like, oh my God. So I call them at seven and they, they finally answer. I think I called once or twice and they answer and said, oh yeah, yeah, sorry, you're not going to go. We'll see you in a couple of weeks and hung up. And at that point I was crushed, absolutely crushed. Because now I had to tell everybody why. And it wasn't just that moment I had to tell everybody. I'd see people two days later, like, why aren't you in Florida? A couple of days after that, dude, I thought you were in Florida playing with the game. And so you had to tell this story and this painful story over and over again. And you tried to minimize the damage it was doing to you and your emotion and your ego the whole time. And so that two weeks, I just trained by myself and I waited for them to come back. And I jumped right back into where I was and it was just as sharp when they came back. But I, I knew at that point, I wasn't going to be one of their guys. And so I looked around at the local A-League teams, which is probably comparable to USL Championship now. There was one in Orange County that was an affiliate with the Galaxy and one in San Diego that was just starting called The Flash. And uh, I ultimately went down with San Diego Flash. And it got to the point where initially I said, hey, can I train with the Galaxy the first couple of days of the week and then train with the team? Which sounded good to me because I didn't want to lose kind of my grip hold within the Galaxy organization, the relationships I was building with the team. But it got to a point where I just needed to be with, with my guys, the guys that I was going to play with. And so that's what I did. And after that year, I did so well. The Galaxy said, we want to sign you. But so did San Jose. And I told the Galaxy to go stick it. And I went and signed with San Jose and ultimately uh, beat the Galaxy in MLS Cup in 2001, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I actually, Octavio Zambrano was my assistant coach in Kansas City my last year there. And I wouldn't talk to the guy. I just, I was friendly, but I just... I wasn't yeah. going out of my way because that guy lied to my face. I don't know how many times. And so uh, I just couldn't trust him at that point. I, I think he's got a great soccer brain and I'm sure he's been nice to 95% of the other people in the world, but I wasn't one of those 95%. So it's all good. Uh, so as an aside, um, now that you, you, you're a little uh, older and wiser, how would you advise kids, players, you know, of any age actually to, you know, manage their relationship with a coach that they're not seeing eye to eye um, with, or that they feel like they're not able to trust, you know, where, where should they take that relationship and how should they handle it? They should write things down uh, immediately, especially if you get not good feedback, just go back, yes. write down what was said and, and look at that thing tape it to your mirror and, and and actually what you should tape to your mirror is both things what was said and then the next thing right next to it should be what you're going to do to rectify those that feedback 
and how you can get better. Uh, uh, and so I used to be pretty diligent in writing my goals down for the season. And every time I opened up my mirror to brush my teeth, I would see those. And it just keeps you on the right path in terms of, hey, in, in terms of your approach. Because of course, there's going to be days where you're not feeling it. But if you look at that thing and like, hey, I, I want to be an MLS All-Star this season. How would an MLS All-Star handle a bad day? And this is one of the things I meant to tell you before about the time thing with the sports psych. When I was out there, I, to, to motivate myself through a tough day, very similar to what I'm explaining now, I would say, what is the best 16-year-old in the country doing right now? How long are they out practicing? And what are they working on? And I told myself, well, it's a Wednesday. It's a school day. They're probably doing 30 minutes. Well, guess what? I'm going to do 45. And, and that, that imaginary enemy or opponent was very powerful for me. And, and you learn later on that Michael Jordan used to do that every day in his practice, right? He'd turn one of his, his own teammates, like, just make up that that guy said something bad about him, and then he would just hit the switch and, and be insane. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not comparing myself to Michael Jordan in any way outside of maybe slightly the mentality of, of creating this imaginary opponent. But when you get real feedback from a coach, it's, again, it can be so powerful if, if absorbed in the right way. And so that's good information. I mean, you're getting, you're getting the goods. You're, you're getting what's holding you back in their eyes. You're getting, that is so incredibly important. So if you take that and then figure out a way to like, okay, and this is what I would do. I wanted to find out what my weaknesses were and then turn those into strengths. And, and that way they, they can never say I wasn't good enough at something. Because if a coach doesn't like you, he's going to point to something that, that he knows you're vulnerable at or you have a weakness at. And, and you can't come back with anything because if you're looking at it realistically, they're probably right. But if you have most of those, those uh, boxes ticked, then what are they going to say? They have to play you at some point, right? And then you just have to be patient and bide your time. So I would be very thoughtful of, of uh, writing stuff down trying your best not to take it personally and, and using it as a tool to get better. I will say this, you'll love this guy. So I'm in, <laughs> I'm in MLS, my friend, my, my freshman year, my rookie year. Uh -huh. And I finally get to play. This is under Brian Quinn and San Jose clash before they turned into the earthquakes. And we're playing in Columbus and we're up three, two. This is a countdown clocks. Everybody. This is still when they had countdown clocks and the, the penalty shootout from 35 yards to decide games. Oh, yeah. 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 So we're playing in Columbus. They had this guy named Stern John. He played for Trinidad and Tobago, if I'm not mistaken. The guy was insane. When he was fit, unbelievable. They had the, he did the Stern turn. Nobody could stop the Stern turn, including myself. <laughs> and, and at three to two, so I was playing with John Doyle. He played in the 90, 90 World Cup for us. Yes. Legend, center back. I really looked up to him. And uh, he didn't like me so much because I think he saw me as a threat to him and a kind of a replacement for him. I, I mean, we're fine now, but I think at the time, that's how he felt. And so we're both playing, and there was a punt. We had, we had a, now this is a countdown clock, and two of our guys, I won't name names, Ronald Cerritos and Raul Diaz Arce, they should have just taken the ball to the corner, Scott, and killed the game off, but they tried to go get that fourth goal. And, and so that gave Columbus another chance with, you know, 50 seconds remaining. Well, their goalkeeper punts it straight up into the air. Now, John Doyle's an absolute beast and wins everything in the air. So he calls for it, and I get out of the way, even though it was kind of in my area. And then he hesitates because he thought I was going to go for it. The ball bounces. Somehow it ends up to Stern John. And Stern John scores when they're counting down. Nine, eight, seven. He scores oh. inside of the post, make it 3-3. Three, three. We end up losing in, in the penalty shootout. And, and my coach was upset. Now, 20 minutes of this all happening, this whole sequence at the end, 
I did a really good defensive play. You know how defenders will shield the ball out of bounds for a goal kick because the attacker made a good big touch or whatever. So I did that against Stern John and one of their top players. I was feeling pretty good about myself. You know, I'm a hotshot rookie, even though I didn't really act like that. I think you can tell I'm, I'm don't ever feel like I'm I'm the best at anything. But I would say that um, I I so I, so I shield this guy out of bounds, and that's when the fans are right behind the goal. And these guys are running their mouth. And so I put my, my hand up to my ear, like, keep it coming, boys, you know, because I had shielded it when it's 3-2. And we're in complete control of this game. I mean, the score's close, but we were running things at that point. And so that gets caught on camera. So we go back to San Jose. We fly home. We're watching the video. And our coach shows that. He, he pauses it and absolutely lights me up for the next five minutes. Mm-hmm. I don't play for the next three months. Ooh. I get sent down to the lower league. And I get punished hardcore for that. That was a really hard lesson. And, and uh, I felt re- when I came back into the team after three months, I felt like an outsider, you know, because I had to work my way back in. Uh, ultimately, Brian Quinn got fired, uh, which I was sad about. I liked him, but I just thought that that was harsh. And so you learn all these lessons along the way. That even when I was feeling good about myself, you know, I had to do, put my stupid hand up to my ear. But but I that was me being engaged in the game, and I think maybe a different coach in different circumstances maybe would have seen it in a different way. But you know, that's in terms of like understanding what your coach wants, and then yeah. and, and I definitely wrote that one down. Don't put your hand up to your ear, and then yeah. learn that that's that's probably not the most professional thing to do. And and how do I want to see myself as a player, and what kind of player do I want to be? And that's what I need to work towards. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like what you're talking about, like just kind of being steady as a coach now, and mm-hmm. and not you know getting too emotional, too low, so mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. high or low. And so, it sounds like you had a little too much emotion for your coach. I did. I did. Well, and, yeah. and probably in general, when I look back, mm-hmm. I, yeah. I don't need to talk trash with fans during the game. That's not not a good look. It's kind of fun though. And um, it was fun. It was. Fun. <laughs> I, I wish we had gone on to win the game. Stupid Stern John. Yeah. yeah, we we need to find that picture somewhere. I'm gonna I'm gonna post that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so keep going and get to the World Cup, and uh, and I'll get you out of here. <laughs> yeah. So ultimately, you know, I played San Jose uh, in and out of the team. Uh, 2000, then my second year, we were the worst team in the league, and we had a lot of young guys that were ready to take on more responsibility. So you had Joe Cannon in goal, Wade Barrett on the left back, Richard Mulrooney, who was my roommate. Wade Barrett is William Mary. William Mary. That's right. Wade Barrett, um, best sideburns in the game. And, and and you mix that with, we got Jeff Agus. So we got him from DC. Frank Yallop was his first year as coach. Dominic Kinnear came in and helped be his assistant. We got Ronnie Eklund, who played for Barcelona's B team and, and picked up Manny Lagos. Got a, lot, a lot of guys with something to prove. And then, and then we won the Landon Donovan sweepstakes. So we went from being the, the worst team to being the best. And Landon scored an amazing goal in the MLS final. And uh, Dwayne Day Rosario was came off the bench for us. Who ended up being an MLS legend. We picked him up from the Richmond Kickers that year. We were yeah, stacked. Yeah. So when you look back at our team, we were stacked, and we ended up uh, winning the MLS Cup. So we went from from uh, zeros to heroes very quickly, and <laughs> and really kind of set the bar for how teams should play and and what San Jose Earthquakes want to be known for. They ended up winning. I got traded after the 2002 season to Kansas City which ultimately was best for me because I was playing right back and left back for, for because we had Troy Dyack and Jeff Agus. I could never really get into the team at the center back position. So I went to Kansas City and in 2003, we had Precky. Precky was MLS MVP that year. That guy, talk about the stern turn. Precky could dice you up either foot. He was awesome. 
And um, we played a back three because we wanted to accommodate Precky in midfield so he didn't have to defend. So we had two holding midfielders in a back three. But I didn't get to play in the middle. I had to be, do some of the grunt work as one of the marking backs. And that sucked. And then, unfortunately, Precky broke his leg in preseason of 2004. And I got to play center back. In 2004, I was 20, 26, 26. Yeah, 20, yeah, 26. And uh, 27, close to 27. And I was just ready. I, I, I knew exactly how I wanted to play the position. I was ready for it. We went into a back four and I just took off. We had the best defense in the league that year. I was up for MLS Defender of the Year. I won it the following year. I went at a, we, we won Open Cup that year in 04. And we lost in the final by a goal 3-2 to DC United. We were two goals away from winning the Supporters' Shield. So we were like three goals away and maybe a little better defense in the MLS Cup final to have been the first ever treble winners in MLS history. We were, we were good. We were very good. Just a little unlucky we didn't get more from that. But that got me called into the national team in 2005 at 27. A month later, I turned it into 28. And I got to go to the Gold Cup in 05. We won that. And a year later, I was playing in the World Cup. I don't even know how to explain it. It's batshit crazy, dude. But, <laughs> but, but I will say this. When I went into my first camp, I knew that I needed to be good, but I didn't need to be emotional, right? I didn't need to over try to do too much. And that's a really delicate balance of like wanting to prove yourself, but not trying to do too much. So I really simplified it. At that time, leading into that camp, I had a teammate of mine on Kansas City, Nick Garcia, who played at IU in Indiana and, and good, hardworking defender and and an unbelievable athlete. So I understood why he got called in, but I just couldn't, when I was started to play, like I was performing better than him. I didn't understand why Bruce Serena would, would call him up when I was, I just thought I was doing more. And so when I got into this camp, I just tried to outperform Nick Garcia in every single drill. That was it. I just, I didn't, I wasn't like, I'm going to play in a world cup qualifier. I'm going to play in a world. I just thought I'm going to be better than Nick Garcia today. And I owe him a ton because that really helped center me a little bit. So I, if we had running drills, I would ask the strength coach, I, can I go, I want to be in Nick Garcia's group. And I, that guy can run. And I'm like, I'm going to outrun this guy every time. We did the beep, beep test. I made sure I lasted one more length more than Nick Garcia. And I just, I was so locked in. I just wanted to be the guy from Kansas City that he called in. Bruce never gave me any love. I will say that the only reason I got called into this camp was because Danny Califf, remember how he left, didn't go to UCLA because he went to Maryland and that got me into UCLA? Well, he didn't come into camp because he was trying to go leave MLS to go to Europe and, and was trying out with teams in Europe during the January transfer window. And that's the only reason I got called in. So I owe a thank you card to Nick Garcia and Danny Caleb. But in fair play to me, I took advantage of my opportunities. And I was, again, very, I played very simple. I organized. I made the game simple for the game people around me. And after three weeks, I got, I went to the first World Cup qualifier in Trinidad. And it was a mind-blowing experience to see how, I didn't make the game day roster, but I was there. And then I got to play in the Gold Cup. I, I was the only player that played in all six games, and we won it. And uh, from that point, I think that, that tournament was really important because it was a tournament format, and they could see me around a lot of the first-team guys, and they could count on me in any situation. If I wasn't playing, not a problem. If I got five minutes, I'll do everything I can on those five minutes to help the team. If I got 20, what do you need me to do in 20? You want me to start? Cool. What do I need to do? How can I help the team? I, I just made sure I was the best teammate as I possibly could be. Didn't make any waves, worked my ass off and tried to get better every single day I was there. And I loved every single second of it. I miss representing the US and, and uh, I knew it was going to go by fast and it did go by fast. But I, I started in a World Cup game a year later. So it's, it's, uh, it's pretty wild. And um, so who'd you guys play? 
So we were, uh, yeah. 2002, we get to the quarterfinals. 2010, we win our group for the first time ever. 2006, we get knocked out in the group stage. I was in 2006. So we played Czech Republic in the first game. And uh, me and Ben Olsen were sitting next to each other on the bench for that one. And the Czech Republic were excellent. That was like the best national team performance I've ever seen in person against us, whether I was on the field or not. They were so good. They had uh, Pavel Nedved, who he won a ball and door one uh, back in 04, I think. And then they had Thomas Rosicki, who was balling at Arsenal at that point. They had Petr Cech in goal, who's like 18,000 feet tall. They had Jan Kohler. Jan Kohler dunked on us three minutes in. That guy was six foot eight and played for Borussia Dortmund. The only reason Czech Republic didn't get through the group is because Kohler pulled his hamstring 15 minutes after he scored against us, and they didn't have a like-for-like replacement. If he had stayed healthy, that team was so sick. Czech Republic was so good. So They were so good, Scott, that, it, that me, we had one sub left in the second half. It was me, Clint Dempsey, and Josh Wolf warming up. And I was like running with Clint going, I mean, I want to play in the World Cup, but I don't know about this game. This game, this, this is, <laughs> these guys are good. These guys are really good. And we yeah, ended up yeah. losing that one 3-0. And, and the, the, I remember going into the locker room afterwards, and it felt really toxic. Like Everybody was upset. And obviously, there was a lot of expectation given how we played in 2002. And we just got our asses handed to us. And there's really not much to say. Was it due to a lack of preparation? I never didn't feel that way. I felt like we were pretty well prepared. So, so I don't know if we got the tactics wrong. I'd have to go back and look at it. Didn't feel that way, right? Leading into it, everything sounded smart. And we were ready to go. Just check were just better on the day and took their chances. I mean, they scored some banging goals. And we just didn't create that much going the other way. And it happens. But it just felt like I got to get out of here. So I grabbed the strength conditioning coach. I grabbed Clint Dempsey. I grabbed everybody that didn't play. Josh Wolf ended up getting in. Grabbed everybody that didn't play. Like, let's just go. Let's go outside and, like, run. Because I just there's so much tension in here. And I've got to get this energy out. So that's what we did. So I got uh, me and Clint kind of led the charge and got everybody out there just to do, you know, go play some possession for 10 or 15 minutes, run yeah. some sprints and just get out of here. Cause it's just not, this doesn't feel, I don't want to like sit in this right now. So that was tough. But then the next game we played Italy, we drew one, one. That was the game where they had a red card. We had two red cards. I came on right after halftime after Eddie Pope got his second yellow. So we were playing down a man against the eventual champions. We we're the only team in the tournament. They didn't beat. It's a really famous game. People still talk to me about it. So to be a part of that was very cool. It was on Father's Day. My dad, who hates to fly, like flew all that way and got to see me play. And it was really cool. Everybody that believed in me was all, they were all there. And so for me to step on the field and to be able to perform at a high level, and I traded jerseys with Andrea Pirlo afterwards. And it's incredible, incredible. And then I knew this is what's funny. You'll love this. That game, I didn't know I was going to get in. And I didn't even need to warm up. I went from zero to a thousand once they called my name to go in. I was like, right. yeah, I'm ready. They're like, you should probably run. I'm like, it does, I don't need to run a few. Like, I'm on. I'm ready to go. I couldn't believe I was going to play in a World Cup game against yeah. Italy. But so, so that just felt like no time to think. Just go in there and, and, and play and have fun and enjoy yeah. it. And that's what I came away with. And obviously, we got a good positive result. It gave us a chance in the last game. We needed to beat Ghana. And we needed Italy to beat Czech for us to go on and play Brazil in the round of 16. And, and we have five days between games. And I knew I was going to start. <laughs> I had some of the worst trainings I've ever had for the national team. So much so that Glenn Meyernick, Mooch, rest in peace, he came up to me and said, hey, are you okay? <laughs> Imagine you're kissing. Like, are you all right, dude? Are you? That's how bad I was playing. I was just so in, in I had too much time to think. And, mm -hmm. and I finally got myself to a, a point where, and I said I was going to be fine. But I, personally, I got myself to a point where, 
I don't want to go home with any regrets about how I perform because I was I was afraid to perform. I was afraid of failing. I've worked so hard to get to this point. Just whatever happens, happens. But don't 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 recoil because of the pressure. Don't recoil because of whatever it may be. Just just dude, chest up, head back, let's go. You know, and and once I got myself there. Uh, it was good, and I, I had Josh Wolf, who's been my he's my roommate throughout that whole thing, and my roommate with my club team in Kansas City, and I've known him forever. He came up to me after the game, and he said that was the best he's ever seen me play. And I said, wow. well, as good a t- any good a time as any to to make that. It didn't turn into a result for us. We ended up losing two one, and we gave up the worst penalty of all time, and I blame the ref for that. But uh, conversation for another time. But <laughs> but I did get out. I look, that's one of the things I talk to my kids about too is how do you get out of your own way? And I had to learn how to do that very quickly at the highest level. Right. Um, I wanted to, I was just thinking as you were talking that uh, when you when you guys at UCLA won the national championship, did you play Indiana? We did. We beat them in the semis. They were undefeated. <laughs> yeah. We we I've had um, their you... their all American guy on uh, Alexi Coral. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. A, yeah. He's the uh, associate head coach at University of Illinois Chicago. Oh, nice. And, and he. Man, he's still bitter about it. <laughs> Listen, Matt, Matt Reese and goal was on fire. They did have a few sitters that that he yeah. saved. Um, yeah. But we ended up winning off like a crazy toe poke scramble in front of the box in quadruple overtime that was sudden death. And we were like running through their cheerleaders and all their – it was amazing. It was amazing. Right. We ended up playing right. Virginia in the final. It was actually a great final four because you had four storied programs. It was us, St. Louis, <laughs> Indiana, and Virginia. And um, yeah. yeah, crazy. I, you know what? Yeah. I don't really feel that bad for him, but I understand why he's bitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, last thing. Shoot. Talk about why you won the humanitarian award. Tell us. So that was a big, thank you for asking, big point of emphasis for me that, and I didn't learn this right away. It took me a little bit to understand it. But I got asked when I was in San Jose to go visit the children's hospital, which is, incredibly sobering because you have all of these kids, some will survive and some won't working through some very difficult things. So it really puts into perspective how you're feeling about a couple bad passes <laughs> for the day or, or where, where your status might be with the coach or within the team. And, and what I learned, not only from that, that's something I gained from the experience, but, but when I went there and you know, you're wearing the polo or you're wearing the Jersey, these kids light up. The fact that you're giving them some attention and making them feel special is, is something that I knew I couldn't replicate if I was not a professional athlete. So right. once I understood the importance and how powerful that is to give these kids even an hour of giving them some smiles and laughs, like I would play kids that had cancer and sorry, and I just try to, to, to beat them as hard as I could. Like I just, and the parents were like, thank you so much for everybody lets them win. But you're coming in like just treating them normal. And, and that's what they need more than anything. And so I took all these little notes and, and that ended up becoming a very important part of what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be off the field. So, yeah, there were times where I was a little, you know, brash with the, the, the hand to the ear. And, and okay. I'd probably talk a little bit more trash than I probably should have been doing when I was younger. But I, I started to understand my role within my team and role within the community and how I could do good on on the field and off of it so so i would win i'd win humanitarian of the year awards for my team in san jose 
And then when I got to Kansas City, there was, I would continue to do the same thing. I worked with a uh, organization that deals with kids with autism. We had a special camp for kids that just for autistic kids. And, and ultimately I saw it as a chance to give the parents a break. I mean, when you're a parent of, of, of an autistic kid, it is, it is a lot and, and there's nobody there to help you. I mean, yeah, you might have the other parent and you might have grandparents or whatever it may be, but, but it's a lot of work and, and they don't always have an outlet to just relax and be themselves. So we would provide food for the parents and then go put the kids on, on the field for a couple hours and just wear them out. And, and, uh, and I'd get, I'd get guys on my team to come out and help volunteer. And, and we would, it was awesome. And, and that's the stuff that I remember and I'm, and I'm proud of. And I hope that it continues that I've inspired maybe other players to do the same thing. No pressure, of course, but you hope that you plant a seed of wanting to give back in, a, in an important way. So there was that that I was doing at the time. And then on top of that, Pepsi put out a challenge that, that they would give $25,000 to a certain project. And I ultimately got Pepsi to agree to, to do the project where we built a, a field for kids in an underserved area. And so I ended up winning based on winning that and all, all the other things I was doing in the community, I ended up uh, winning the humanitarian of the year award, which I will say for all the things that I've accomplished, that's the one my mom is most proud of. And so she's, <laughs> that's the number one award that uh, she, she right. names first before uh, all the other right. stuff that I've, uh, that I've right. done. Yeah. Does she have the award? I actually have it. Yeah. No, she doesn't. Okay. No, no, no. Okay. I have it. It's, uh, it's very cool. And I don't probably don't share that story as much as I should, but I didn't, I don't do it. You know, you don't do those things for that reason. You kind of just want to show what you're doing. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, and so I try to give back in different ways now, whether it's, you know, free coaching or whatever I can do, that type of stuff. Um, But yeah, it's, it's, but but when you're a professional athlete, man, the kids are so excited to see you, whether they're in a a hospital or if they're, they're just so excited to see you and that you would give them attention that it feels like a real shame that, that more players wouldn't be taking advantage of the, 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 the positive influence that they could have on the community. Right. Very cool. Um, I don't want to take up your whole afternoon, so uh, no, I can talk. I love talking soccer. Um, it's great, <laughs> especially like the well, little the little details are so important to the to yep. the process, you know. So hopefully, something somebody out there can gain something from it, even if it's the Louis Balboa story, because that's what changed my life, and I always try to pay it forward in that way, because yep. that was a big, big moment in my life, very pivotal in terms of my mentality shift. And and another thing I learned along the way too, which I think people should know. Nobody owes you anything. And I learned right. that post-career. I thought when I retired, oh, baby, I played in the World Cup. I'm going to get people knocking on my door. And everybody's like, oh, cool, you played in the World Cup. But you don't necessarily have the job schools, skills that are necessary for what we need you to do. And so when I learned that I had to start all over again, it was the most freeing moment because then I could kind of just let go of any expectations or entitlement that I had and just be like, cool, I've done this before. I can do it again, starting from square one. Let's get after it. Let's get, let's, let's start learning again. Right. And being open to learning. And that, that changed my life. But when I also, uh, in that, when I learned that nobody owes you anything, that, that was very freeing as well, because then you start to approach things in a much different way. And you're, you're more receptive again, once again, to the feedback, right? You don't take things defensively. So anyway, I want to put that in there as our last parting, parting wisdom, as they say. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, But yeah, hopefully we can do this again. I love that. um, yeah, maybe uh, you know, maybe we'll get Jay. Jay to merit, rise and shine, baby. Let's go. I love what he's doing. Jay's great. Yeah, he's cool. I have a bone um, to pick yeah. with Jay to merit, by the way, because he ultimately replaced me on the national team, and he was like the younger version of me. 
Mm-hmm. Like, because we're all hard work, hard, hard on our sleeve type guys, you know. And yeah. um, he, he he always feels a little bad, but but I like sticking it to him. Like you bastard. Yeah, yeah. You should. You absolutely <laughs> no, should. No, I'd love to have yeah. him on. Jay, Jay and I have been friends for a long time. He's great. Yeah, yeah. You guys' uh, stories kind of remind. They're they're you know they're similar in in several ways. So yeah, it's cool. Yeah, yeah. Which you probably already knew, but uh, yeah. I've seen the documentary. Yeah. I'm, I'm familiar with the Jay Demerit story. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Um, all right. Anything else before we uh, table it for the next time? Yeah. Please don't follow me at Jimmy Conrad on any social media stuff because I don't want to have to apologize for any of the clown nose and clown shoes things that I'm doing. But I'm having fun, and that's really what it's about. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Hold on one sec. Thank you for listening to the Tales from the Trail podcast by Matchplay. If you're enjoying the podcast and find it valuable, please consider visiting buymeacoffee.com matchplay. These small donations collectively help offset costs and other expenses associated with production of the podcast so I can continue to offer this service for free. Please take an extra minute to rate and review the podcast where you listen. This is a huge help. Share the podcast with whomever you think would be interested and will help in their process. Check us out on matchplayrecruit.com for our social media links. See you on the trail.